Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data centre podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Senior Reporters Abigail Pierre and Natalie Bannerman. We are also joined live today by a special guest, Josh Snowhorn, who will be sharing details on his new venture, Quantum Loophole, later in the episode. This week, as always, we will also tackle the bigger stories of the last seven days. But before we get into those, a quick roundup of the headlines. This week, we have heard that KPN has attracted the biggest pension fund in the Netherlands to take a 50% stake in its open access rural fiber business for 440 million euros. In South Africa, Metro Fiber has secured a $169 million loan for its network expansion. And Down Under, Telstra's plans to split into four operating divisions and merge one with MBN has received backlash from its rival telcos. In Japan, Samsung has won a 5G contract with NTT Docomo. In the US, BT has appointed Shep Patel to head its operations in the Americas, replacing Jennifer Artley, who has moved to Verizon Business. And over at Intel, the new CEO has confirmed a $20 billion manufacturing boost and the launch of Intel Foundry Services. And on the COVID-19 front, vaccines funded with a $25 million donation from MTN Group started to arrive in Ghana earlier this week. So on that note, first up today, let's hear what else has been happening in the world of telecoms. Natalie, over to you. Thanks, Melanie. So starting off in the world of subsea, Interaction has entered into an agreement with Telsius to enable direct interconnection for the Do Not Subsea cable at Interaction's Paris facility. Specifically, Telsius's capacity on the 6,400 km Dunant will extend the reach and capacity of Platform Digital, which we all know is actually Digital Realty's uh, global data centre platform. Through the collaboration, customers will now have a direct connection between Northern Virginia and Paris. Now, according to Carlos Castedo, head of EMEA sales for Telsius's cable business, uh, by extending the do not capabilities directly into interaction in Paris, we make it more efficient and simpler for customers to interconnect into the system, while at the same time integrating it with the internet highways connecting Paris to Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Madrid and Marseille. Interactions Paris uh, campus is actually comprised of seven seven data centres, which many of our listeners will know is currently undergoing major expansion with the construction of the Interaction Paris Digital Park. Through this partnership, Interaction customers in all and existing planned data centres can actually interconnect to Telsius's network capacity on Dunant. So overall, a great uh, collaboration that will ensure many benefits for enterprise customers looking for interconnection across the region. Now some exciting news over in the Middle East. Kuwait has officially welcomed its first mobile virtual network operator called Virgin Mobile Kuwait. Uh, Earlier this week, STC and Virgin Media, sorry, Virgin Mobile um, Middle East and Africa were awarded an MVMO license from uh, the country's regulator, the Communication and Information Technology Regulatory Authority. The chairman and CEO actually said we are uh, glad to see the entry of a reputable international investor such as Virgin International um, and they will bring their expertise to the Kuwaiti market. This move will surely contribute greatly to the telecom sector in raising the quality of service and overall customer experience. It should also be noted uh, that um, the regulator is also trying to introduce greater competition in the marketplace so this will surely help. 
Uh, it was announced during a press conference um, and Virgin Mobile Kuwait will actually operate using STC's network with STC acting as a host facilities based provider with Virgin Mobile Kuwait. The license is also uh, contingent on another agreement for the provision and resale of the services necessary to allow the reselling of services to end users and to operate as a business. Now over in Africa, specifically the burgeoning tower industry, Airtel Africa is selling its telecoms tower companies in Madagascar, Malawi, Chad and Gabon to Helios Towers. In total, the company has amassed uh, 2,227 tower sites, meaning that once the deal is complete, it will make Helios Towers the largest independent communications infrastructure company in Malawi, Chad and Gabon. The news actually forms part of Airtel Africa's plan for an asset light business model and according to the company's CEO, will also help to improve the mix of its debt and increase its tenure uh, through long term leases. The deal for the assets in Madagascar and Malawi are due to close in Q4 of 2021 and represents an enterprise value of $124 million, with revenues of approximately $38 million. The assets in Chad and Gabon will close in, in or around Q1 of 2022, uh, although the value of the deal in these two markets have not been shared. So some big news for Helios Towers, uh, you know, once these acquisitions are completed, we'll probably be looking at a big game changer in the African market. And lastly, back to the world of subsea, but this time for Latin America. The well, Galapagos Cable Systems or GCS and Xterra have announced plans to build a new subsea cable to the Galapagos Islands. Announced by Ecuadorian President uh, Lenin Mourinho earlier this month, the project has been in development since 20, 2018 and is a collaboration between CNTEP, who carried out the feasibility studies, which actually led to the investment from GCS. Together with Xterra, GCS will lead the construction of this 1,280 km subsea cable system uh, between Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. Due to go live in 2022, the new system will boost capacity to the Galapagos Islands tenfold with a full design capacity of uh, 20 terabytes per second, uh, meaning it's capable of providing um, over 2,500 times more than the current bandwidth available in the region. For its part, Xterra will design and build the turnkey system using their um, SDM repeater and cable supplied by uh, Parisium and NSW and the marine installation activities performed by um, IT International Telecom. According to the uh, telegeography map, this will actually be the first subsea cable to the Galapagos Islands and the sixth cable to um, Ecuador. So much needed uh, capacity in, in the region and congratulations to everybody all around. Uh, but that's it from me with the telecoms roundup. Back to you, Melanie. Thanks, Natalie. Um, now, as mentioned at the start of the episode, we are joined live today by Josh Snowhorn, who will be talking about quantum loophole very shortly. But before we go to Josh, let's set the scene by hearing what else has been happening in the world of data centers. Abigail, over to you. Thank you, Melanie. This week has been not so busy, not as busy as last week, but ever busy nonetheless. Um, starting with UpCloud, the European cloud hosting company is opening its new data center in Sydney, Australia. After three global data center openings in 2020, UpCloud's latest data center will be opened in the financial capital of Australia. 
and it's the company's first data centre in Oceania. Um, it connects flagship Sydney data centre, where UpCloud's new facility is located, belongs to the data centre campus in Sydney as well. The data centre will be available starting from the 31st of March this year. UpCloud said it will continue to um, expand to new regions in 2021, with the company promising multiple new locations across the globe in the near future. Last year, they actually launched three new sites, one in New York, one in Madrid, and one in Warsaw. And this new Sydney data centre is the company's 12th data centre overall across, across the globe. Um, moving on to Facebook, um, Facebook is expanding its Papillion data centre in Nebraska by adding nearly 1 million square feet to the facility. The social media giants announced in a Facebook post that it will be updating the facility's name from Papillion data centre to Sarpe data centre. Facebook claims the expansion will bring an additional $400 million in capital investment to Sarpe County in Nebraska and will add um, as much as 100 new operational jobs. The company said it will maintain hundreds of construction workers on site and will bring its total investment in Nebraska to nearly $1.5 billion and will support more than 300 total data center jobs. At the peak of construction, Facebook said it will have more than 2,000 construction workers on site. And when the construction is completed, the data center will be 3.6 million square feet in total. Um, now, moving on to a report I found quite interesting this week. According to a new data center report from JL JLL, um, there is an increased cloud migration and technology um, adoption that drove unprecedented activity in the data center industry last year. JLL forecasts that 21% um, that there's going to be a 21% increase in new data center capacity with 438 megawatts to be added to um, established markets this year. Take up in Europe's main data center markets of Frankfurt, London, Amsterdam, Paris and Dublin increased by 22% year on year, reaching 201 1.2 megawatts with this pace of growing um, of growth expected to continue for the rest of the year um, this year. Um, in 2021 JLL also forecasts that 438 um, megawatts of new supply will be added to the flap D market and a 21% increase, well, which is a 21% increase on the total market size. The report found that despite a slow start um, last year because of the pandemic, um, enterprise collocation demand picked up um, in the second half of the year across Europe. Take up in London increased by 72% with 87 um, megawatts seen throughout the year. Frankfurt also had a record year of uh, absorption with 69 megawatts of deals and 124 megawatts of um, headline signings and a significant growth in new supply placed Frankfurt as the largest mainland co-location provider in Europe. Um, and lastly, this week, Amazon's cloud unit has announced um, the appointment of Adam Selipsky, I hope I pronounced that correctly, as CEO just over a month after Andy Jassy left the position to take over from Jeff Bezos as Amazon's CEO. In an email to AWS employees, Jassy gave details of um, Selipsky, who will be replacing him, um, and said that he will bring strong judgment and um, CEO experience to AWS's leadership team. In 2005, he was one of the first VPs um, AWS hired and ran the company's sales, marketing and support department for 11 years. Setup Sky became the CEO of Tableau in 
2016 and ran the company for the last 4.5 years. Tableau was eventually acquired by Salesforce and he remained the CEO of the company as well as a member of Salesforce's um, executive leadership team. Jassy also added in an email that CelebSky will return to um, AWS in May, around the middle of May, and the pair will spend the subsequent um, several weeks transitioning together before making the changes sometime in Q3. So that'll be quite interesting to see, you know, what AWS will look like um, and just how they're going to develop and move forward with such big changes in the company. Back to you, Mel. Thanks, Abigail. Um, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that develops because, I mean, when Andy was first um, promoted to Amazon CEO, we were all quite, well, very much expecting that the new w, the new AWS CEO would be announced imminently. But as you said, it's been nearly a month in between those two announcements. Um, but yeah, interesting as well that he's a former employee that's returned and also his route to the corner office was through sales and marketing rather than um, through traditional routes. So thank you very much for that roundup, Abigail. Um, well, next up, it's time to find out about quantum loopholes. Um, now, Alan broke this story a few weeks ago and has been following it closely ever since. There's an exclusive interview in the next issue of Capacity Magazine, but it's a few weeks before that's out, so we are delighted to be joined live today by the man behind it all. Mr. Snowhorn, welcome to the Digital Digest. Thank you, Melanie. Pleasure to be here. Um, well, huge congratulations on this new venture. Um, it's a mega project in many ways, and I don't use that term lightly. Uh, we're talking a 20 million square foot campus in a data center capital of Virginia. And last month, you confirmed 30 million US dollars in seed funding. Um, and there are many more big numbers in this project. So perhaps let's start with an overview. Um, what is Quantum Loophole and what are you hoping to achieve? Well, Quantum Loophole was was really uh, founded with the principle of, of turning the data center industry on its head and, and really meeting the 10 to 15 year planning cycles for the hyperscale enterprise and, and various other industries that needs large data center plays in a large campus. Um, we went out and as a team, formed the company and went out as a team trying to source the largest piece of industrial land that we could find in, in the uh, Virginia area and uh, managed to get a campus that's over 2,000 acres with most of it being zoned general industrial, allowing us to build a massive campus. Um, we, we actually think we can do 25 million square feet, 1,080 megawatts of power on our first substation, the first of many, all of that linked to transmission power, and we're building a 100,000 strand count fiber backbone to link all of that together. See, huge numbers, huge numbers throughout this project. Um, and this is gonna be sustainable as well, I believe. Absolutely. Uh, the property that we've acquired is uh, had historical industrial uses. So it's it's something you would call a brownfield site that's been environmentally mitigated. So it's ready to go to actually build uh, uh, really the next generation of industry, which is the Internet. Um, we're able to use gray water. So recycling water that comes uh, from a city and be um, dumped into a river or into uh, uh, other areas. So taking uh, taking that and reutilizing that for cooling um, and designing. However, our, even with that, our cooling systems are incredibly uh, efficient, very low water use, um, closed loop type systems. Uh, the energy that we plan to source will be green energy as much as is possible, um, moving away from fossil fuels completely. Uh, and, and included in that, we're actually moving away from backup generators on the campus. while. When you build 25 million square feet with a wide variety of customers, there will be some folks wanting to have their big diesel generators, as as tradition has it. Um, our goal is to facilitate large-scale lithium battery farms, uh, to have that really set up day one to facilitate 
uh, non-generator backup systems, and of course, being able to migrate into other technologies in the future as, as they come along for battery backup. Interesting. Um, so before we move on to how this fits into the wider data center industry, tell us a little bit about the name and the logo design as well, which um, you were telling before we started recording. There's quite an interesting story behind this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the name Quantum Loophole is really a, a, a twist on science. Um, uh, when Einstein and, and um, Barr came up with quantum entanglement, scientists spent years trying to prove that it existed. And then there was the Bell test, which was created in the early 1960s. In that test, they would shoot a laser at a, a, a piece of boron and, and measure the photons using light sources at either end. However, after millions of, of variations of that test, they found out that, um, that the freedom of choice issue came into play, that human beings can influence an experiment. Um, the, the twist on the name is quite interesting because we like to look at our campus as freedom of choice. Uh, a customer can come in and buy land and build their own data center. We can do build to suits. We can supply energy, fiber, and a wide variety of, of pieces in between that. Um, think about like a giant Swiss army knife of a campus and, 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 and you know, in a park-like environment that's a community that they can all utilize and benefit from. Um, so that, that's been that wonderful benefit of the name. Uh, and, and it just sounds great to top it off. But uh, the logo itself is, is quite British in its origin. Um, I reached out to a good friend of mine, Esteban Palazzo, who's one of the lead designers at McLaren Automotive, who's designed some of the cars that I love to drive. And, and, and certainly admire. And I asked him to create a logo around the theory of, of a quantum loophole. So he created three rings and, and the quantum loophole name in front of it. So it has a, a great legacy and heritage on our name. Indeed, yeah, and a fantastic start um, for the brand as well. Um, so I want to ask you next about the wider data center industry, because as mentioned, this is a strategic location in Virginia, um, and you're in very good company there. But if we look at quantum loophole as part of the wider ecosystem, where do you fit in? And given the advancements that we're seeing in computing power and general capacity right now, how do you expect to kind of like work with other players in, in the industry? Uh, I'll start out with the with the last question you had. Uh, we welcome everybody to our campus. So be it a hyperscaler or be it a multi-tenant provider or a wholesale provider, if they want to be on the campus, that's just fine. Um, the, the the idea behind Quantum Loophole is not a monopolistic uh, 25 million square feet of building and then we're going to lease it to you. Um, so, that, so that really opens the door for everybody to have a play in it. The difference between us and the rest of the remaining industry, really as a whole throughout the world, because our campus is the biggest data center campus that's ever been built, um, is, that, is that we're really focused on long-term planning cycles for the industry. So rather than going out and sourcing 20, 30, 40 acres of land at say up to $2 million an acre uh, attached to a distribution substation and, and hunting around for hopefully some adjacent fiber backbones, um, and then next year doing it all over again. Uh, our campus is designed to support scale over the next 10 to 15 years. So a customer can come in, acquire a large parcel of land with a massive amount of available energy, which is really the key, and a massive amount of available fiber to give them scale for a long-term planning focus. And that's very different than the existing industry. There's nobody other than maybe, I think the largest campus in the Ashburn area is maybe 400 acres. And uh, and that's that's frankly kind of puny compared to what we've we've acquired. Yeah, can I jump in uh, and ask a question? Uh, again, I'm going to push you on your name, uh, Quantum Loophole. Now, and you've just said you're talking 10, 15 year time frame. Now, I was talking to Dan Caruso um, 
a week or so ago, and he's the interview with him is going to be in, in the same issue that the interview with you, Josh. And he's going full on quantum physics, data centers, quantum physics computing. Um, we'll hopefully have a, a computer you'll be able to um, vent time on, to use an old-fashioned term, uh, by the end of this year and then buy one next year. Are you looking towards using quantum physics in your long-term plan? And is that why you've got a You've got quantum in the name? Uh, not, not really, Alan. Um, the name is really is really tied to freedom of choice. Um, so, so that is truly where the quantum loophole affiliation comes from. That being said, I am a giant fan of quantum computing and and what it's going to bring to our industry. And freedom of choice still adheres to that. Um, so, let's say you have a data center and that has a hundred thousand square feet of compute in it, um, whatever megawatts of power that might be. And, and maybe in, in five to 10 years, or maybe longer, that same compute can be done in a single, um, I wouldn't call it a rack, because a quantum computer these days doesn't look like that, but let's say a, a 10 rack equivalent space and maybe a good chunk of power. Um, you know, that, 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 that theory and thesis behind that is amazing and would be welcomed in something like we're doing. Um, however, it still won't reduce the amount of, of of space needed for servers to actually deliver content and, and, and other type things that would be associated with that. Um, the, the quantum computing today as it stands and where the focus is going is really on, on computations that would be greatly accelerated either from security perspectives or um, you know, trying to find the end of pi or who knows what else. They're, they're, it's supposed to be able to do those calculations instead of 25,000 years in some case, it might be in seconds. So we would welcome something like that. And, and in the end, it all translates to lots of connectivity, lots of energy, and a lot of space for people to do the things they need to do. And from the security point of view, it's going to make a huge change, isn't it? It's going to blow out of the water all our current security procedures uh, because if it's possible to, to crack encryption within a few seconds, then yeah, it's, it just makes it all meaningless. Yeah, you, you'll see quantum encryption come into play then. So then, then you know, whether or not that, and I'm sure, to be honest with you, with some of the security agencies, I'm pretty sure it probably already exists, um, you know, and, and, and just hasn't been out in the public realm yet. Why hasn't the quantum loophole uh, formula, I mean, I know you're still evolving the formula, why hasn't it been done before by all the data center companies that we've had for the last 10, 15 years? It's very interesting. You know, I, I've been part of that industry, as you know, with with my history with Terramark, Verizon, and then Cyrus One. Um, I, I certainly heard it bandied about a bit. Uh, the, the even the lightest discussion of gigawatt and my God, a thousand megawatts. How could that be possible? How could our industry get to that? Um, I think that what you see in the industry today is that everybody understands things probably need to go where we're going. Um, we have the advantage in our case of getting the very unique piece of dirt with, that's incredibly energized and zoned industrial, and that, that's a, a huge advantage. And we just got some first mover advantage here. But uh, I, I do think the industry will eventually transition to this. Um, the, the, the customers themselves are driving down um, the cost or the price, excuse me, that they want to pay. Um, while cost to build data centers have, have only economized so much. Um, so so you, you start to get to a point now where the margins will drop and it'll become an unhealthy business. We're, we're kind of leaping ahead of all of that by five years and, and putting it in place. 
Um, I, I think it's just really our ability as a new company with a lot of capital behind us now, um, which which will be announced eventually here. Um, <laughs> I wish I could tell you all those details. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but as those things come together, we're able to execute it. A lot of the players in the industry today are public, um, the scale players, they're real estate investment trusts. They are viewed um, out on the markets as on a quarter to quarter basis. So it's very difficult for them to step out of a production level mode of rinse and repeat. Um, in addition, if, if you look at the real estate investment trust, their primary investment base is the NAREIT um, index funds and the folks who actually drive dollars into that. And those funds tend to be very anti-developer, so anti-risk. They are looking for just a, a, a very strong um, uh, um, AFFO and FFO type return, and which is a, a metric used by REITs. And uh, so that, that starts to remove uh, the ability for those folks to go take risk. Um, certainly some very well capitalized, capitalized companies could have gone and done what we're doing, but we, we've done it first. So it's risk aversity on their part, and you're prepared to take a risk. Absolutely, and and you know, we're doing it. We're not doing it uh, blindly, Alan. You know, we yeah. we went out and interviewed all of the biggest customers and and asked them where their pain points were, and we got together as a team and 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 tried to create a product that that is utterly flexible and removes all of those pain points for scale, time, and everything else. Um, every time my team starts to do something that's inside of the box, you will absolutely see me assaulting them and trying to understand why they're thinking that way and how come they're not doing it this way or that way. And that has driven an amazing innovation culture inside of our company that we hope to maintain for a very long time. Before I hand over to Abigail, who's a real expert in, in data centers, can I just ask, what's your timescale in terms of uh, starting construction, you know, breaking ground, in this mysterious plot in uh, Virginia somewhere and actually welcoming customers on the premises and powering up everything. Um, we have uh, a timeline of starting um, very big public announcements uh, uh, around the July timeframe and then um, um, starting really some of the baseline project construction as in site work and things like that. One of the very first things we have to do, Alan, is to build the substation um, to take on the transmission power that's already on hand and and sourcing the transformers and and all the pieces in play to have an incredibly resilient transmission scale substation um, uh, not distribution it's always key to remember we are a transmission scale um, the same thing on the fiber backbone uh, we should have all of our engineering docks and easements and and, and permit ready pieces uh, ready to go around june or july and uh, so we'll be able to announce that route and what we're building in that side as well um, the client side, you know, that all depends on contracts. We're not just going to do a build it and they will come scenario. Um, we have the benefit of very long term focus and time here. Um, however, we do have some clients who have asked us to be up around the November or December of 22 timeframe. Um, so a lot of pieces have to move in, in the fiber backbone side, um, even though we have a lot of adjacent fiber already, uh, but actually building our backbone and uh, getting the substation ready to go to deliver that highly resilient energy. I just had one question um, for you, Josh. I read that a number of the data center sites will be under construction um, across the Northern Virginia site at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. This is quite rare for me because I, I usually hear and report on people building one data center, then when that finishes, um, building the other one. So what was the rationale behind that decision? And does it make the overall process quicker? And what challenges do you predict that you might run into, you know, not building one after the other? 
Well, um, when you look at the, what we're building, we're not building a multi-tenant building and, and getting the walls up and surrounding it with generators and, and, and meet me rooms and everything else, and then building either demise data halls or cages within the building. Um, the scale of what we're doing, while there might be some multi-tenancy going on, either from us or, or other customers coming on, is really a, a multi-tenant um, data center city where each building is its own entity or each uh, parcel is its own entity. So by multiple construction projects going on at the same time, what we're alluding to is that multiple hyperscalers and enterprises and multi-tenant providers will be building their data centers at the same time, taking advantage of the massive energy that we have on hand. And so, I mean, will that make the process quicker, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I, I would love to I would love to tell you that we can stand up 25 million square feet in 24 months or something insane like that. But um, that's not really going to happen. Of course, this is a decade long project. Um, it's it's industry changing. Uh, I would expect that will be there'll be somewhere north of a couple of million square feet in the first 24 months or so. And then just a continual ramp up over time, taking advantage of the entitlements for zoning, which are incredibly important. Having a general industrial zoning is is really unheard of almost. And, and to be able to uh, uh, take advantage of the power. Um, our, our hope is actually, uh, depending on what utilities can deliver at transmission scale uh, and going through planning with them, we've, we've alluded to the fact of potentially going to 3000 megawatts on the campus. And it is supportable with the infrastructure and with the land that we have available. That will take three separate transmission scale substations. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Guys. We do have uh, a map on the wall just off camera. Um, the other side of that um, racing car you've got there um, <laughs> that has um, that has some other pins in it that say this is quantum loophole two, quantum loophole three, either across the United States or maybe in other parts of the world. Oh, absolutely. There are pins. I'm not going to show those to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't think you were. <laughs> <laughs> we are um, we are heavily engaged in 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 acquiring parcels in other markets. Uh, all of our attention right now is focused on the Northern Virginia market um, because that is where the uptake is and where the demand set that has been given to us by the customers is located. However, there are uh, currently three other markets in North America that we're looking for land in right now um, and, and quite well along in some facts along alongside of that um, and some other ventures associated with energy and other things um, um, that'll be coming along. So you'll you'll see those come along. But but Sir Alan, to be honest with you, it's going to be a while before we announce some of those things more than anything. It's secrecy. Um, the the concepts that we're using to acquire parcels are our risk in taking on large brownfield type sites that might need environmental mitigation but because of the long timelines we're willing to do that to do those kind of things um you'll see those come along but this is not a one and done project that is not the kind of uh, team that we are or uh, certainly with our new capital partners coming on that's certainly not their focus they want us to go big great Thanks, guys. Um, Josh, just a couple of questions on the business front now um, to wrap up. Um, you raised 13 million in seed funding. Do you have any schedule in place at the moment for the Series A and B rounds? Um, we are currently in in um, um, funding. Um, how do I say this? I can't really say the words because of NDAs. Uh, we are currently in a funding process um, that should close sometime in the June timeframe. Uh, to fund our company going forward for all of our needs. 
Fantastic. Um, and are you able to share details of what this initial 13 million will be used for? Oh, that was really for SGNA um, and certainly um, uh, escrowing funds for land acquisition and other things, engineering and design. Um, we've gone and filed some patents around uh, energy orchestration and, and the fiber platforms uh, for large scale mass rapid deployment of fiber. Um, so, so it was really just to get the company organized and bring on some of those initial rock stars on the team that are that are forward thinkers. Um, we, it, it's you know certainly not enough to build uh, you know campus of the scale we're talking about. So it was really just the great Kickstarter. We're very proud that we raised that amount of money. Um, really, our first funds came in in April of 2020. So right as the pandemic pandemic was melting down the world, we were able to raise a massive amount of funding um, to start out a company. So we're very proud of that. I can imagine, yeah, and it really does um, sing to that demand and that future and demand that you were talking about earlier. And um, just one more question as well on the personnel front. Um, I mean, you know, outside of the industry, people have this belief that data centers are these just big faceless places where no people ever go. Um, but obviously, we know that it takes a lot of engineers and a lot of specialists to actually get these um, get these facilities online. So do you have any projections for local job creation or kind of talent needs that you will be demanding over the next 10 years? Certainly, there'll be large amounts of engineering and construction side personnel just, just because of the physicality of standing up these data centers. Um, some of that will be internal personnel to manage projects. Uh, a lot of that will be external contractors, which, of course, by its nature, creates a massive amount of jobs. Um, we're trying to use as many local firms as possible. However, some of the designs that we're using are so forward thinking. We've really gone to some much larger uh, national U.S. firms uh, to help us along the way. And, and we're busy talking to various vendors and other bits and pieces that go along with that. Inevitably, data centers, once they become completely operational, are very automated these days. So they're not the biggest job creators out there. But um, that actually has turned out to be a benefit when we're talking to the community that we're located in. They're very happy that they don't have to build a, a large amount of new schools or a large amount of new roads to support traffic. Um, if, if this was a normal campus of our scale, with 25 million square feet of buildings and imagine that was all office the, it would be quite impactful to the community so we generate lots of tax dollars while not really impacting um, infrastructure very much in the areas we go to and i think that's kind of a blessing Thanks, Josh. Um, well, moving on to the last segment for today, um, Alan, we're coming back to you now. Um, and I believe you have some stories on how the pandemic is forcing even more change in the industry. Yes, thanks, Melanie. And, and Josh just said that uh, the whole quantum loophole story started as the pandemic was starting to roll along. So there were three interesting pandemic stories in quick succession this week, uh, one directly about the data center market. First in China, uh, where the cloud services market has grown an astonishing 62% in a year. That's uh, looking at the fourth quarter of 2020 compared with the fourth quarter of 2019. So it was $5.8 billion higher in the fourth quarter. Of, uh, it was $5.8 billion in the fourth quarter of 2020, and that was $2.2 billion higher than the fourth quarter of uh, previous year and $740 million above the third quarter of 2020. Huge growth, 62% uh, uh, year by year. And what's caused it? Well, the pandemic, of course, where China locked down very early in 2020, um, and everyone turned to remote learning and working and gaming and streaming and e-commerce and everything else. Um, uh, these are figures from the market research company Canalys, which also gave an interesting breakdown of uh, who the leaders are in the Chinese cloud market. 
in the fourth quarter. And Alibaba Cloud had a 40.3% share of the market, well aware of uh, Huawei, which is number two, with 17.4%. So Alibaba was more than twice as big as Huawei. And Tencent was 14.9%, and Baidu was 8.4%. So the four companies, those four companies, Alibaba, Huawei, Tencent, Baidu, had an 81% market share, according to Canalyst, which is quite extraordinary. Um, now, the other sector that's also done well over the last sad, tragic 15 months since it all started in Wuhan is mobile money. And uh, international money uh, mobile money transactions went up by 65% last year, says the GSMA. Nobody's been able to travel, normal sort of ideas of, you know, going to see your grandmother in uh, wherever it may be every year and taking over, taking some dollars in your bag. That's gone out the window. So people are having to use electronic means. Um, so the GSMA says that uh, international money transactions were $12.7 billion last year. That's over a billion a month. Uh, those are cross-border movements of cash. But if you just look within uh, payments within countries, we're talking about $2 billion a day. That's every day, $2 billion going via mobile money. Um, there are, are 1.2 billion people across the world registered to use mobile money. That's what's the population of the world, 7 billion. So it's a big percentage of the world's population already using mobile money. And a quarter of that 1.2 billion use them use the services every month in any month so that's quite significant uh, the pandemic's been bad for a lot of people bad for most of us but in, in terms of the technology well it's been good um and how long is it all going on you ask well um i got a survey from a, a networking company ariaka and yes they've got a vested interest because they're a networking company they found that 80 percent of uh, the 1338 users they talk to expect substantial numbers of us to remain remote at the end of the year as the pandemic rolls on. That's one in five organizations think that more than half of us will remain remote right through to the end of 2021. And three fifths, about 60%, think that between 25 and 50% will still be remote working through the whole of this year. Uh, why does it matter to Ariaka? Because a lot of existing networking technology for enterprises, of course, is built on the basis that we're all clustered in offices, in cities, um, in city centres. Uh, no more, as we are all proving, recording this podcast, all working from homes from UK to the States. Uh, so techniques such as SD1 might be more appropriate. Will this happen? We don't really have any data. Even Ariaka admits that because, of course, people were cutting back on CapEx last year. So we're not quite sure which way it's going to go. Um, we've all been surviving on what we've already got, our home broadband. And obviously, there's more pressure on fibre to the home. Um, as Melanie, you said right at the beginning of this podcast, uh, on the investments in fibre networks over the coming up over the next few months. Um, so we'll see. And finally, we're recording this on Thursday, the 25th of March, and in the early hours of the morning uh, European time uh, of Friday, the 26th, uh, satellite company OneWeb is due to launch another 36 satellites. That's the second launch of 36 since it was rescued from uh, its financial problems by the UK government and by Bahati Global, the Indian investor. Uh, all was going well uh, as we are recording this, I hear, so good luck to them. Um, and the company's got another three launches lined up. That's the end of April. Then I think May and June, 
exact dates to be confirmed. That will give the company coverage right across the northern bit of the world. So if you're north of the 50th parallel, which all of the UK is and Poland is, and most of Russia is, the really cold bits of Canada um, are not the United States and not France and Spain and the Mediterranean. But certainly if you're north of the 50th parallel, you'll be covered when the service is launched commercially in October. At least that's the plan. And there'll be a lot more launches from the summer onwards. And the aim is full global coverage in mid 2022. So there's a lot happening next year. Um, meanwhile, Starlink, which is owned by Elon Musk, SpaceX, that's launching its satellites even faster. It launched 60 on Wednesday, and that was its fourth launch alone in March, 60 at a time. So 240 in March. There's going to be some fierce competition for our business over the next few months. Those of us who have no decent broadband at the moment and live in rural areas and a satellite dish will be the answer to all your problems. So with the pandemic going on and on and on, we certainly need it. Melanie, back to you. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. That was a great full circle there. Um, I was going to say, gosh, you know, I wonder why everyone's pushing everything back to 2022. But if the um, if the general consensus are all going to be sat at home for the rest of this year, then I guess that answers it. Thanks yep. so much, Alan. Um, well, that brings us to the end of our episode. Um, Josh, before we wrap up today, do you have any um, final messages or maybe anything else that you'd like to um, tell us about Quantum Leap Hole? Uh, you know, I'm just very excited to be able to to change the industry um, and and have a team together that that's innovative and focused on doing that, and and really appreciate the stories you guys are writing. And as we are able to tell more details, uh, be able to expand on that, I think I think everybody in the industry is going to be truly impressed. And and this is game changing. It certainly is. We are very impressed here at Capacity and we're very much looking forward to hearing lots more from you over the next, over the coming years. Um, thanks so much, everybody. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Um, thanks to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories. Huge thanks to Josh for joining us live and also thanks to everybody who listened. We will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, you can catch up all the latest over at capacitymedia.com. There you can sign up to the Daily Telecoms news alerts from Capacity and also the weekly news alerts from Data Economy. Also online, you'll find the latest issue of the magazine and details of our events calendar for 2021. On that note, in April, which starts so soon, we have Digital Infra Africa and Capacity Latam both coming up. Um, and we are halfway through Power 100 season as well. Nominations are open for another couple of weeks and links to the nominations page are included in the post that brought you to this podcast. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week. Take care and catch you next time.